All right, we're going to look at the book of Ephesians tonight. So if, if you've uh, got your Bibles, turn to Ephesians, and uh, you've got an outline there and the chairs that's available to you. Ephesians is one of four books referred to as the prison epistles. I think we addressed that back in our study of Acts, how the various books of the New Testament are broken out. Prison epistles, because these are letters that Paul wrote on, uh, or during rather, his first uh, Roman imprisonment. You know that Paul was imprisoned again at the end of his ministry, an imprisonment that uh, tradition teaches resulted in his death by execution, but there was an earlier imprisonment during which time the Apostle Paul wrote four letters that appear in the New Testament. He wrote Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians and Philemon during that imprisonment period. If you're a student of the Bible, you have likely noticed the great similarity that exists between the book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians. Presumably, those two books were written really closely together. They would have been delivered by the same messenger or mailman, and uh, they share a lot of the same content, and the cities of Colossae and Ephesus are, are relatively close to one another in that area known as Asia Minor. It was that part of Asia that John addresses in Revelation 1, 2, and 3. So we've got this relatively small area um, which, with churches in the, the uh, district of Ephesus and churches in the district of Colossae, and the Apostle Paul is writing uh, to each of those congregations individually. I really think that Paul writes Colossians and Ephesians and Philemon at roughly the same time and sends them by the same messenger and then at a later time comes back and writes the book of Philippians near the end of that imprisonment. That's not terribly uh, helpful or even uh, like a non-negotiable type of issue, but that does seem to be the chronology of Paul's writing uh, here in the New Testament. There are some marvelous truths to be found in the book of Ephesians and Ephesians does for us what really we ought to all strive to do when it comes to doctrine or theology. Most of the Apostle Paul's books are what are called bifid books, meaning they're, they're two-part books, theology in the front and practical application in the back. What Paul does is to establish a theological foundation upon which the practical application in the back half of the book is established. We tend to divide those two things as though they were separable. We think about doctrinal preaching and we think about applicable teaching or, or preaching that uh, focuses on application, but really those two things need to be connected. It, 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 it re we really need to ask or to answer the why question. For instance, in the back half of the book of Ephesians, why is it that we should be unified as a body? Well, the theological foundation for unity is established in Ephesians chapters 1 and 2. And apart from that foundation, it may be difficult to understand how central to the gospel the unity of the church really is. And there are other issues in the back half of the book that are equally important, equally built upon, built upon in the same way, the same theological foundation established in the front part of, of the book. So this is how we do doctrine, right? I always want us to stay away from this idea of doing theology or establishing doctrine that's just this concept out there in the air for us that doesn't have bearing in our life. Doctrine should dance in our life. So when we're reading about some theological issue, maybe we're, maybe we're giving thought to the doctrine of the Trinity. That ought to move us in some way. We have to continue through that work until we get to the place of asking, 
what application does this now have in my life? What difference does this now make for me? And there are a myriad of applications of understanding that particular doctrine. But I want us to work in that direction in the time that we have together. I want us to look at, at some of these key themes. Your outline is there before you. There are 11 items in the outline. We're not going to look at 11 items in our time together. I've selected a few of these that I want us to address more thoroughly along the way that help us to capture the essence or the spirit of what's being stated in the book of Ephesians. The first is the riches of God's grace, verses 3 through 14 of Ephesians chapter 1. Now, here's an interesting tidbit about Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. There are several sentences that make up uh, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 in your English translations. But in the Greek Testament, this is the longest sentence in the New Testament. A full 95 Greek, Greek, Greek sentences can tend to be relatively short. You can take a Greek verb and make an entire sentence out of one word. But here is a Greek sentence that is 95 words long. And in this 95-word long sentence, Paul spells out for us the beauty, the riches, the, the glory of God as revealed through grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want us to read all of this sentence, and then we'll come back and uh, draw some attention to a few key parts. The Bible says in verse 3, Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavens. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ for himself according to his favor and will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he favored us with in the beloved. We have redemption in him through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he planned in him for the administration of the days of fulfillment to bring everything together in the Messiah, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. We have also received an inheritance in him, predestined according to the purpose of the one who works out everything in agreement with the decision of his will so that we who had already put our hope in the Messiah might bring praise to his glory. When you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed in him, you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He is the down payment of our inheritance for the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. Now, anytime you're in a Bible study setting and the language of predestination is used, it raises eyebrows and can be a contentious issue, primarily because we see things through a Western lens and people make the assumption that if we say that God is absolutely in control of all things, then that must necessarily mean that we're in control of nothing. The reality is that the Bible addresses both of those two issues and the Bible not only speaks to God's absolute control over all things, but also man's moral responsibility for the decisions that he makes. Both of those are in play. So I, 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 want, I want you to see in this passage that this, this, has a, this is pastoral, right? This is a looking back on our experience in Christ, our being called to him, the great grace that's been revealed to us, and how that stands to minister to the soul. And understand some of the language that's being used here in the passage. Don't be afraid of this kind of terminology. 
Paul says in verse 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That's a remarkably comforting and encouraging statement. It communicating to us that God has loved us since before the foundation of the world. And if you're afraid of these terms, and many people are, and probably because they've been browbeaten with them or these terms have been abused in some way, but if you're afraid of them, then you're going to rob yourself of the kind of soul nourishment and encouragement that you might otherwise derive from these verses in your walk with Christ. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight in love. Then verse 5 says, he predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ for himself according to his favor and will. Let's just talk about what predestination means. From time to time, I run into someone who's, who will, they will say this, I don't believe in predestination. And I, I typically know what they mean. The problem with that is it's in the Bible. And I, I've even had conversations with people who would say, and I get where they're coming from. Like I get the spirit of the statement. I, I've heard this in the last week. Yeah, I know it's in the Bible, but we're Baptists. We don't believe that. Like I get what they're trying to do. They're, they're recoiling against a, an, an abuse or misunderstanding of this verse as it's been used or applied in some setting. But you don't have to be afraid of this terminology. I don't get where there could be any consolation or comfort for us in the idea that somehow, some way, God is not in control. Like I, I, from time to time, I'll find that people are resistant to the idea of God's sovereignty when bad things happen. For me personally, I delight in God's sovereignty over my life, specifically when bad things happen. Because these things are happening according to God's plan for my life. And even though they may be painful, even though these experiences might be dreadful for me personally, I know that God, who is in absolute control over all things, has a good plan and purpose for this pain that I'm presently experiencing. I'm not comforted in any way by the notion that somehow things are out of God's control. So don't be afraid of this terminology. On the other hand, you want to make certain that you're balancing your understanding of what's being communicated here with our clear moral responsibility in the Scripture. The same Bible that says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be, according to predestination, to be adopted as sons, says that God loved the world so much he gave his own son that whoever believed in him would not perish and have everlasting life. That, that Christ's atoning work is sufficient for all of the world and not just us. So I think there's a place for some balance to be struck here for us to delight both in God's grace toward us and that he's intervened in our experience. Apart from him intervening in that way, we would have never come to faith in him. And yet at the same time, to, to carry a, a concern, a fear of the Lord that would motivate us to follow faithfully after him over the duration of our life. So what's being established here is his grace toward us. And there's listed in our passage a series of actions that God has taken on our behalf. First, specifically, that he has predestined us. In other words, in the foundation of the world, God set in motion a series of events that would first condition our hearts to receive him and then ultimately culminate in our coming to faith in him at a decisive moment in time in the history of our life. God has done that for us as an act of great grace. Secondly, he has adopted us through Jesus Christ for himself. He's, he, he's adopted us, and, and having a, a, what we hope to be a one-day adopted child in our home helps this concept to come home to me in, in, a, in a sweet way. I, I was not his child. I was not his son. 
the Bible says we were sons of Satan, sons of the devil. I don't particularly look like him. I don't come from the same part of the world. I don't speak his native language. There's not a whole lot that he and I would have in common. He is holy, and I am altogether unholy. But in his great grace toward me, he made me his son. By faith in Jesus, I have now become a child of God. That is a remarkable thing. Sometimes we let the way the world talks about all things religious rob us of the sweetness of certain phrases like that. I get that all of humanity is God's children. I get that. But there's a special sense in which we, by faith, having come through grace, are the children of God. It really is a remarkable position that we enjoy, a privileged place in Christ. It's, it says, the Bible says in verse 7, that we have redemption through redemption in him through his blood. He has predestined us. He has adopted us. He has redeemed us. That is, he has paid the price of our freedom. The language of redemption in the New Testament is the language of buying something, someone from their servitude. Slavery was a, a different matter in the Roman Empire than it was in the American experience in the early days of American history. It, most of the time in the Roman context, slavery was a temporary thing, and often it was individuals selling themselves into servitude in order to meet certain financial obligations that they had within their family. The idea of paying the price of redemption or redeeming someone from their servitude or their slavery was to go to the slave master, to go to the owner of the servant, and to pay the necessary price for his freedom or his release. This is what Jesus has done. In the shedding of his blood, he has purchased our pardon. The Bible says in verse 9 that not only has he redeemed us, he, he has made known to us the mystery of his will. That is, he has revealed himself to us. Our knowledge of God is not the product of our wisdom or intellect. It is the work of God's grace in us. You remember in Matthew 16 when Peter asked, uh, Jesus rather asked Peter, who do they say that I am? And, and Peter has this fit of wisdom. And he says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. What did Jesus say? He said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. It is an act, a sheer act of God's grace that he would reveal himself to us, that we could know him, that we could understand his will, that we could have any measure of understanding of who he is and the kindness that he's shown us in his son. Verse 11 says that in him we have an inheritance, a, a, an inheritance, again, predestined according to the purpose of the one who works out everything in agreement with the decision of his will. He has prepared for us an inheritance, meaning we have become heirs of God's glory through Christ. All of the riches and glory reserved for Jesus, he has gladly chosen to lavish upon those who would believe in his name. This is a remarkable thing. So I get you get a word in here that draws all the attention and you miss the bigger picture. The bigger picture is God has saved us, and it's all of grace. God has redeemed us, and it's all of grace. God has paid the price of our redemption, and it's all of grace. God has revealed himself to us, and it's all of grace. 
God has guaranteed us an inheritance in Christ, and it's all of grace. Now, if you were listening carefully as we were reading through, you likely picked up on this phrase, according to. First example of this is in verse 5, according to his favor and will. In other words, he has done what he has done for us according to his will. This is the basis for his decision. He looked upon us and he loved us, and on the basis of that love, he determined to do what he would do. He determined to redeem us. He determined to adopt us. He determined to reveal himself to us on the basis of his favor and will. In verse 7, again, we have a similar statement. He redeems us according to the riches of his grace. It was all of grace. The motivating factor for God in doing what he has done for us is grace, which means you didn't deserve it and I didn't deserve it. God did it all of grace for us. There's another example of this in verse number 9. There he makes his will known according to his good pleasure that he planned in Jesus. He makes his will known to us because God delights to make his will known to us. In other words, the thing that makes God happy is to make himself known to us. And that is, again, a motivating factor for his revealing himself this way. Another example in verse number 11. In him we've received an inheritance according to the purpose of the one who works out everything in agreement with the decision of his will. He did it because he determined he would do it and he has the power to do it and he was pleased to do it. That is, he was happy to do it and he does it motivated solely on the basis of grace. Our salvation, the Apostle Paul is saying, is of grace and of grace alone. Now, we're going to come back to this particular idea in just a moment because it's critical to what Paul is establishing later with regards to unity in the church at Ephesus. But the key thing I want you to see in this passage is that it's not one that you have to be afraid of or need to be afraid of. In fact, I, although I've never preached through the book of Ephesians, it's one of the very few books I've never preached through in my preaching ministry. This is a passage that I go to very, very often. A lot of the time when at, 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 a, at the hospital bedside or with a grieving family or someone who's just received a, a, a bad diagnosis, this is the passage that I go to, to remind and be reminded of God's grace showered on us through Jesus. And you know what? In that setting, which I think is the intended function for this particular chapter, no one has ever raised an objection whatsoever to the terminology that the Apostle Paul uses in this passage. It's pastoral. It ministers to the soul. God is in control, and he has lavished us with great grace, and he can be trusted come what may. In chapter 2, we get to this passage that's really, I think it's probably one of the most familiar passages in the New Testament for Baptists with regards to salvation. Look to chapter 2 and verse number 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of this world, according to the ruler who exercises authority over the lower heavens, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. 
So let's pause and reflect on what's been discussed here. You and I were dead in our sins and trespasses. We were cold. We were lifeless. We were unresponsive in every conceivable sense. We were children of wrath. That is, our sin was deserving of the wrath of God against us. Before you were children of God by faith in Jesus, you were children of wrath deserving of the punishment of God against your sin. We walked according to worldly wisdom. We did worldly things. We fulfilled the lust of the flesh. We followed through with the sinful inclinations of our imagination. We were dreadfully sinful people. We lived among the Gentiles. We were among the Gentiles carrying out those sinful inclinations, doing whatever it was that we determined we might do on a particular day. We were deserving of God's wrath. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. But verse 4 says, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with the Messiah, even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. The illustration of this is found at the tomb of Lazarus in John chapter 11. Lazarus is in the grave and he's dead. We were dead in sins and trespasses. Lazarus was dead and in the grave. And Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And he was in that moment by Christ made alive. You and I were dead in our sins and trespasses. But there came a day when the gospel of Jesus Christ came to us. And God quickened our hearts. And Jesus, through the gospel, said, arise. And by gospel grace, indeed, we did. We were dead but have now been made alive in Christ Jesus through the power of the gospel. You are, Paul says, saved by grace. Verse 6 says, together with Christ Jesus, he also raised us up and seated us in the heavens so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you were saved by grace through faith. So you didn't deserve to be saved. No one does. It's all of grace, right? Not a response to something that we do at some point in time in our life. Not in response to some foreseen merit. It's all of grace. We're saved all of grace. But faith becomes God's means of our salvation. We believe on him. That becomes the connection point, right? The Apostle Paul talks in Romans 6 of our union with Jesus. By faith, we are joined with him in his death, in his burial, and his resurrection. The means of that connection is faith. Look to verse number 8. You're saved by grace through faith, and it's not uh, from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. Even the faith that we have is God's gift to us. You see how again and again and again the Apostle Paul is saying, it's all of grace, it's all of grace, it's all of grace, it's all of grace. It's, it's, not, of, it's not of you. You didn't sit around and muster enough faith for God to save you. Through the hearing of the gospel, God is giving, God is granting the gift of faith. This is a remarkable thing. It's the kind of thing that when you get your arms around this, when you really begin to comprehend the extent of God's grace for us, it is an incredibly humbling thing. You will be brought low by this idea. 
But we hold on. We cling to these ideas that somehow, some way, we're, we're bringing something to the table. We didn't address this in chapter 1, but the, the, the most common way of, of sort of doing the short circuit on the predestination issue is to say, well, this is God looking down through time, and he sees what we're going to do. We're going to choose him. We're going to not choose him. And on that basis, then that's going to fix in time what, what God does and what we do. But that's not, listen, that is not at all what's being described in that passage. Philosophically, there's some major problems with that, and biblically, there are problems with that idea as well. Philosophically, you have a scenario where God is being educated by the decisions that you're making. Nothing could be further from the truth. You have to get back to this place of balance. God is absolutely in control, and we are morally responsible, and I'm okay with that tension and not having all the answers to that sort of conundrum, right? I don't know how the Trinity works. I don't know how Jesus can be all God and be all man. I don't know how God's sovereignty and our moral responsibility work together. I just know that both of those are clearly taught in the Bible, and we should relish those two principles as they are communicated in the Bible. It is all of grace. It is all of grace. Apart from grace, I would not be your pastor. Apart from grace, I would not be a Christian. Apart from grace, I would probably be dead or imprisoned. And apart from grace, none of you would be believers in Christ. Apart from grace, none of you would be saved from your sin. We weren't looking for God when he found us. It was grace that intervened in our life. It's all of grace. And Paul couldn't be clearer about such here in verses uh, 1 through 10. Verse 10 tells us that we're his creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. He, he, he saved us to walk in the works that he prepared ahead of time for us, that we would walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called. I'm, I'm telling you, there's a dose of humility for people here that I just wish the world would take a great big gulp of and just relish in this incredible grace that God has lavished on us. It is a remarkable thing that God has done for us through his son. And he didn't have to. God no more had to stoop and attend to the needs of mankind than you're obligated to stoop and attend to the needs of the insects that crawl your yard. In fact, the distance is greater between us and him than it is between us and the insects that crawl our lawn. But in grace, in grace, undeserved though we are, he showered us with great love. Now, a big reason that Paul is establishing the fact that our salvation is by grace and a big part of the reason that Paul uses the language that he does in chapter 1, that language that can be troublesome to American Christians, the language of chosenness or predestination. He's specifically using the language of the Old Testament as it relates to God's election of Israel because he's writing into a Gentile context where Jews and Gentiles are at odds with one another. So Paul is being careful here to use the language of Israel's election to make reference to the chosenness of the Gentile people who come to faith in him in order to draw those two groups together. A major concern in the book of Ephesians is the, 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 the distance, the, um, the conflict that exists between Jews and Gentiles in the city of Ephesus. That's a major motivating factor for him. 
One of the things that you can quickly see as you begin to study and read the New Testament at, at, at any level is that there are, there are clear implications in the gospel for how we relate to people of other ethnic backgrounds, right? There is a calling together of people of every tribe and tongue and nation in the gospel. All of those old boundaries have now been absolved under the blood of Jesus. So there's a great deal of concern here at drawing together both Jew and Gentile. Let me show you this more clearly in our passage. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised. In other words, at one point you were called uncircumcised by people who are circumcised. You were chided, you were criticized, you were castigated by the Jews. Uh, let's see, verse 12. At that time, you were without the Messiah, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah. For he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. You know what the answer to race riots and constant conflict and critical race theory and intersectionality and scores of other issues that plague our society at the present hour, you know what the answer to those things are? The gospel. You know, I, I get how there could be all kinds of tension and conflict in the world over these issues. It's been that way for all of human history. I mean, since the dawn of time, since the Tower of Babel, when there was a diversity of ethnicity, there has been conflict that existed between various ethnic groups. But within the body of Christ, li listen to this and hear the full force of this statement. Within the body of Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, bondservant or slave, Scythian or, or otherwise. We're just one in Christ. We're just one in Christ. We really are one in Christ. You, you, have, you have more in common with, with someone of an altogether different ethnic and cultural background on the other side of the world who loves Jesus than you have in common with your neighbor who shares all of your likes and interests but does not believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Christ, we are one. Those who were far off have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah. He is our peace, having made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. He has made us indeed one in himself. Now chapter 4 is uh, an interesting part of Ephesians, and I think it provides us with a recipe for church growth. And I don't mean church growth in the 1980s and 90s church growth model sense. I mean healthy, spiritual, and physical church, church growth. And it's really very, very, very simple. Look to chapter 4 and verse 1. Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you've received, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, accepting one another in love, diligently keeping the unity of the Spirit with the peace that binds us. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Which is to say, there's just really one church. The New Testament speaks of 
the church, and it speaks of the local church. And you need to be a member of the church through the gospel, and you need to be a member of a ability it affords you. Verse 7. Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of the Messiah's gift. For it says, when he ascended on high, he took prisoners into captivity. He gave gifts to people. But what does he ascended mean except that he descended into the lower parts of the earth? The one who descended is also the one who ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. I probably should have skipped over that because it creates a lot more questions than what I'm willing to answer in the time that we have remaining. This is where the, the notion in the Apostles' Creed comes from that he descended into hell for a season between his crucifixion and his resurrection. It doesn't necessarily need to mean that. We'll talk about that when we get to the sermon series in Ephesians sometime way down the road. Look back to verse 11. He personally gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the training of the saints in the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. This is a, real, a really succinct way of saying he gave different gifts to different people in the church. You get more exhaustive list in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and even in Romans, but here he's just listing the offices within the church, apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers, and those have been assigned for the training of the saints in the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. Verse 13 tells us how long. Until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of God's Son, growing into a mature man with a stature measured by Christ's fullness, then we'll no longer be little children tossed by waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning, with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. From him the whole body, fitted and knit, and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body, for building up itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. Here's what Paul's saying. When, when we each as members of the body exercise the unique gifting that God has afforded us, and the body is pulling together, the body is moving in, in a gospel direction, the body enjoying some unity with a diversity of gifts, no less pulling together, when the church operates that way, it, it's at the height of efficiency. And the reason so many bodies, the reason so many churches cannot enjoy any degree of gospel advancement is because, one, there is no exercising of spiritual giftedness within the body, and two, there isn't an inkling of unity in the building. This is the recipe for gospel advancement, right? There's, there's power in, in this. I can't, I can't stress enough how blessed we are to enjoy unity and harmony as, as a church. And you would think that would be the kind of thing, well, there may be so-and-so you know, dissatisfied or unhappy with something, but that doesn't have to drag everyone else down. But it does. Like I, 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 there have been times I've gone and preached in churches, and, and no one had to tell me there were issues. You could cut the tension with a knife. You could just sense it. It quenches the work of God's Spirit within that body. It's not that you can have a little discord over here, a little frustration, a little slack, a little sin in the corner, and it doesn't infect the rest of the church. It just does not work that way. And so my, my plea to you, one, is to exercise the giftedness that God has granted you. Every one of you 
by faith in Jesus, have a unique gifting. And apart from your exercising that gifting within the context of this church, we will never be the fullness of what God intends for us to be. I really believe that with all of my heart. You have an, a unique gifting. You, as an individual, have been gifted by God with a specific set of gifts and abilities. And unless or until you are utilizing those gifts within the context of this local church, we will not have the gospel effectiveness we would otherwise have. It just takes a little sickness in the body to be crippling. I, you know, I've been dealing with this kidney stone thing since December of last year, and I've had it up to way past here with the whole deal. And it is amazing. It is amazing how this little T90 thing can completely cripple the human body. But I'm telling you, the body of Christ is no different. Just a little T90 smidge of discord and sin or slack can be a crippling factor to the body. You steward well the gifting God has entrusted to you. And may he grant us the ability to steward well the gift he has entrusted to us in enjoying the fellowship of this body the way we do. And may we be effective and efficient and see people brought from darkness into light by the power of the gospel that is pleased to abide in us and among us through the utilization of our gifting and the unity we enjoy together as a body. This was a recipe for church growth before there even was a Lifeway store, right? There's no need for the volumes of books about how to do it. You just pull together and you utilize the gifts that God has given you. And, and here's, the, here's the thing, and I think people confuse spiritual gifting with natural talents or abilities. I'm not talking about natural talent or ability. Some of us have very little natural talent or ability at all. But somehow God has been pleased to gift us spiritually. If all you're using are your natural abilities, all you're going to get are natural outcomes. My desire as your pastor, and I hope our desire together as a body, is that God would do something among us that would rise well above our natural capacity or abilities. I don't want to get to the end of my ministry and be able to reflect on talents and natural abilities that contributed to the outcomes that I experienced over that years. I want that God would have done something in my life in ministry. And I want that God would have done something in your lives in ministries, that God would have done something in our body that we would all have to be in agreement was well beyond the capacity of your leadership, well beyond our ability as a collective group. Clearly, God showed up and did something remarkable at Longview Point in that body of believers. And he did it all of grace with arms locked, marching in a gospel direction, with unity and harmony in their hearts, laboring under the giftedness that God had afforded each member of the body. By grace, God has done something remarkable there in those folks. I, I hope that you'll spend a little time in the book of Ephesians and relish the beauty of what Paul is communicating here in the passage. I hope that you'll drift off to sleep tonight meditating on this reality that your salvation and mine is all of grace, all of grace, all of grace. And furthermore, your gifting within the body is all of grace, all of grace, all of grace. 
And I hope that if you've not already, you'll begin to investigate ways that you can leverage that gifting to see the kingdom advanced in extraordinary ways. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth and for these moments to spend together reflecting on your amazing grace for us. God, I pray that you would forgive us of our sins, help us as Ephesians teaches us to walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called. Help us to be children of the light as you are in the light. Help us to model our, our homes and our interactions with others at, at work around the gospel, Lord. Help us to see our station in life as a platform for advancing the gospel. I pray that you would remind us and, and stir humility in our hearts of the great grace that you have shown us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, thank you that you have loved us in spite of who we are, in spite of the many dreadful things that we have done. You've chosen to show us favor and mercy. And God, I pray that you would be greatly praised in our lives and the lives of others as they observe your kindness toward us and them as well. Help us this week, God, to go and to tell others about the power of the gospel, how it saved us, and how by faith it may save them too. And we'll give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.